Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. I'm Catherine Burns, and this is the Moth Radio Hour. At the Moth, people tell true stories on stage in front of a live audience. It's old-fashioned storytelling about modern life. No notes allowed. It's just the storyteller, the audience, and a microphone. The Moth began when the novelist George Dawes Green decided to invite a few friends over to tell stories in his New York City apartment. He wanted to recreate the nights when he would sit around telling stories on his friend Wanda's porch on an island off the coast of Georgia. These moth evenings quickly became too big for his New York living room, and they soon moved into bigger venues in the city and eventually around the country. This hour we have three stories. Our first is from Ed Gavigan. It's a story he told at a moth night we called Rush, Stories About Ticking Clocks. I came to New York uh, with my architectural education and years of experience building uh, houses and furniture and just enough money to open up a little wood shop in Brooklyn uh, underneath the Manhattan Bridge. And I hired a couple of uh, earnest wool hat wearing carpenters from Vermont and uh, we made exquisite one-of-a-kind pieces of furniture and we sold them one at a time for about a year until I realized that uh, uh, my business model wasn't really gonna work and I was actually funding a nonprofit support group for earnest woodworkers <laughs> and um, so we used to drink at a couple of bars in the village uh, the first one was a rundown dive bar with black spray paint on the ceiling and a pool table the other one was a little bit fancier, um, owned by an Irish guy, a firefighter, and uh, it was a little bit nicer. And I made friends with both the guys, and we'd go there and we'd drink. And one night, the owner of the dive bar was shooting pool, and he's belly aching about his lease is going to be up, and he can't pay the higher rent, and he's going to go out of business because none of us are going to pay more for the drinks, and his, his life is going to be over. And a light bulb goes off in my head and I see my solution. I said to him, you buy the wood, I will design it and build it, and they will come. You will charge more money for drinks, I'll work three nights a week, you work four nights a week. Uh, it's gonna be a beautiful thing. Um, he agreed, shook hands, did the deal. I built the bar, it was beautiful. And on Sundays, um, it was quiet, and Vinny the Chin, Gigante's guys, would come in, and sit at the end of the bar. And very nice guys, they drank Glenfiddich in a champagne flute. And <laughs> one of them took me aside one day and he goes, he goes, Eddie, you know what you did here for us? You did a beautiful thing for the neighborhood. You took a cockroach and you turned it into a butterfly. You're all right. I, I was, in, I was in seventh heaven, right? I had everything I wanted. It was going great. I go to my buddy, the firefighter, at his fancy bar, pick his brain, get question, you know, I question him on how to make my bar uh, run well, because I had never done anything like this. And my, my partner, he was used to running a dive bar with a pool table. So I pick up tips from him. And one night, I'm walking over to visit my friend, and I'm thinking, I have cracked the code for New York. I've got it all figured out. As soon as the bar gets going, I'm gonna have revenue stream. I'll carve my little mahogany pieces in Brooklyn. It's gonna, it's gonna be great. So I walked around the corner to head down to his bar, and I walked into an initiation for a gang called the Latin Kings. And they had three guys with their knives out, 
like this, and a lookout at either end of the block to move up into the upper echelons of the gang that they, uh, you know, they had this uh, ritual. They had to kill somebody. And I was the uh, circumstantial guy coming down the block. So they, I, I, I was walking and, and I stepped aside to let the three of them pass and they jumped on me and they started stabbing me as many times as they possibly could. And one guy had a 10 inch knife and it went in my side and up. The other guy was stabbing me on my back. And a uh, little biographical note, when I went to college, I was at Notre Dame, I was on the boxing team. So I did okay there. And I got one punch, one straight right to the guy in the middle. And he went down like a sack of potatoes. And the guy with the big knife was still stabbing me. And when I realized that I was being stabbed, I was a little disconcerted, I started to scream. And the screaming, plus the fact that their middle guy was now down, they panicked, they started to pull him away, and I started to run down the block. The problem was, both my lungs were collapsed, and if you know anything about anatomy, my inferior vena cava was cut, which is basically a garden hose-sized vein that brings all your blood back to your heart. So I'm running down the block to Arturo's. This is on Thompson between Bleecker and Houston. I'm screaming my head off. And all the little Italian ladies on Thompson Street call 911. Arturo's waitresses come looking out, and, that, and I go down to my knees, and I start to crawl, and my lungs are filling up with blood from my injuries. And I roll over on my back, and I think that things are going very badly for me at this time. <laughs> and my vision goes down to little pinpoints, and I had to move my head to see who was looking down at me, and, and everybody's just in complete panic. And I realize how, how bad it is, and I just feel like there's no way anybody's gonna be able to help me. Um, I, I, I know that it's bad and I'm going. And this being New York City, a garbage truck pulls up. And off the back of the garbage truck jumps one of the guys who happens to be a Vietnam vet. He hears what's happened, he comes over, he stands over me, he picks me up by the front of my shirt and he starts to smack me and he goes, don't you fucking die on me! And he goes into his flashback and I start to wake up. And the pain, was intense enough to give me a little boost. And I look at him and I go, please, you're hurting me. Can, can you stop? But the blood now is coming out of my mouth and then the ambulance pulls up. And I'll never forget, the ambulance comes up and uh, the first guy out of the ambulance is a very tall, slender guy. And he looks down at me and everyone's telling him, so, you know, what happened, what happened? And I'm, you know, I'm looking up at him and he grabs me by the chin. And he said, um, this is gonna hurt. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> and he takes his scissors and he starts to cut my clothes off. And I, I remembered I had a really nice cashmere sweater on and I said, you have to cut the sweater. And he stuck an adrenaline needle in my neck and he looks back at his partner and he goes, why do they always say that? <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I knew for the first time that he'd done this before and that maybe I was gonna be okay because he knew exactly what he was doing. So they took all my, my clothing off my torso and he lifted up my arm and he sliced me open under, between my ribs and he shoved a tube between my ribs into my lung. And that hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. And I came up off the sidewalk and he pushed me down and he goes, oh, we gotta do the other side. <laughs> so he lifts my arm up and he sliced me open and he shoved another tube in, uh, which hurt equally as bad. And the good part about that is that all my blood was now draining onto the sidewalk so I could breathe. They put me in the ambulance, they bring me to the hospital, the surgeons are ready, I was in surgery. Um, it took them about 10 hours to open me up, take all my organs out, like unpacking a suitcase, check everything, and then take, I, I lost organs I didn't know that I had. They took about 12 feet of my intestines out, stitched me all back up, put it in, I'm out at this point. Um, and, uh, I wake up the next morning on life support. I've got tubes up my nose, I've got tubes up my lungs, I've got a catheter, I've got morphine drip, I've got, I just, I mean, just punctured through and through. And at the end of my bed are two homicide detectives and the surgeon and the homicide, and everyone is so sure that I'm gonna die that homicide has the case, right? <laughs> and what, he, what, what they say to me is, you know, we caught those guys and, uh, the DA will be here in a little while, and uh, we just, you know, you don't have to talk. We'll just tell you what's up, and you can agree and put a little X on the form, and we'll, 
And they thought I was going to die. Like, they, they, nobody thought I would make it. And they were so sure that I wouldn't live through the surgery, the next 48 hours with the infection. All, nobody thought I was going to make it. And the detective says, you know, we recovered the knives, and I have never seen anybody get hit with the kind of knives you got hit with. Buddy, what do you eat? <laughs> and I said, Guinness. And that seemed to satisfy them. And I became basically a mascot in the sixth precinct for not dying. And then my dad and mom flew out, and they stood at the end of my bed. And while well, they were divorced, so they argued. But anyway, they um, were happy that I was alive. And then my dad went to the bar that night and met everybody. And he came in the next morning, and he goes, Eddie, you know what? I got an envelope here. And this man came up to me last night, and he goes, is it the case that you're the father of Edward Gavigan? My dad was like, yeah. And he goes, would you please come here? I have to tell you something. And he goes, Mr. Gavigan, there was a time when those punks wouldn't have made it off the block. But those times are gone. <laughs> and we'd like to apologize. Here's a card for your son. And I opened the card. It was full of money. And it was the cheesiest Hallmark card you could ever see, signed by the boys of Sullivan Street. <laughs> the mafia. <laughs> so I get out of the hospital. Um, come off life support, and when uh, I get off life support, I'm released under this program, special program they have for people with no insurance, which when they find out you don't have insurance, they give you a bottle of Percocet and a cane and uh, push you out the door. So I ended up at home. My girlfriend at the time is uh, completely distraught. She hates New York. Uh, I can't go to sleep because every time I try and sleep, the movie starts and the stabbing and the, the horror. And, and so she wants to leave New York. And I say, I'm not going to leave New York. I, you know, uh, nobody's, I'm not leaving. She's like, well, I'm going to leave. If, if you don't leave, I'm leaving you. I said, uh, okay, got to go, bye. So um, at this point then, uh, everything is bad. Like, I have behind on all of my bills because I had expended every ounce of credit. I'd borrowed money. I'd maxed my credit cards, everything to open this bar. Um, I was behind on the rent when I went into the hospital. And now I'm, I'm getting uh, calls, right, the creditors every morning. And yet, I'm so happy to be alive. So I walk down the street, and I'll look at a flower, and it'll be singing. And I'll be like... <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Every minute, I'm just like overjoyed. And yet my life is shit because every day, it's like until the phone got cut off and the landlord has padlocked my shop in Brooklyn because he wants to make sure he can keep my tools to sell when I don't pay the rent. And uh, I get the eviction notice. And my folks say, we're not going to help you stay in that horrible city. They're back in Wyoming, where I grew up. And they said, if you come back here, we'll buy you a pickup truck, and you can get better and just make it build houses here. You don't need that. It's a horrible city. And I said, no, actually, I don't like the strings you're attaching to the help. And uh, so I'm not leaving, and I'll, I'll be here. Thank you. And I talked to my partner at the bar, um, and I said, you know, what about the money? Is there any money? And he said, well, Business is hard, expenses are high. And, um, and I thought to myself, wow, okay. And uh, then I came home one day and all my possessions were in plastic garbage bags on the sidewalk and I was evicted. And um, homeless guys were <laughs> picking through my stuff and carrying it off and I was like, go ahead, uh, I got no place to go. And uh, so I called uh, this cute Canadian bartender that we had at the bar, um, she was a poet and uh, I said, can I sleep on your couch? So she agreed. And uh, so I went to sleep on her couch, and I was getting uh, more and more angry at the world. And I would alternate with, I'm so lucky to be alive. And then my medical problems were so horrible, but I had no money to do anything. I, I, I couldn't even ride the subway. And I'd, I'd then have these moments where I'd look at a doorknob and think, all the lives that had come and opened that doorknob and how exquisite everything was. And then I thought, you know, all those guys that are sitting in the rocking in the corner in the mental institutions, this is what every day is like for them. And I press it down, press it down, and keep going. And then one day I was like, you know what, that bar, that's gotta be making something. I gotta 
and I, I went in, it was late Saturday night, and I go in and I uh, go through the books. Turns out my partner had renegotiated our deal until I could work the three nights a week. I was a 0% partner, and the bar had actually been doing really well, and I, uh, I went berserk. So I started to bust up the joint and take out all the beautiful things that I'd made and smash everything I could get my hands on, and the um, manager called 911, and the 6th Precinct came to arrest me. <laughs> put me in handcuffs and bring me back to the station house. And on my way in the door, who do I see but the detective? And he's like, Eddie, what the, take the cuffs off of him. What, kind, what do you want in your coffee? Sit down, get him a sandwich, come here. <laughs> Sit down, they fingerprint me, and in comes the phone call from my partner. And I did say I was gonna kill him. So he said to them that he needed an order of protection. And um, so the detective says to me, you know what you gotta do? You give that guy the ultimatum, you won't kill him, he gives you a check. He goes, the bigger the check, the sooner you forget who he is. It was great advice. We got a check, was able to get some therapy, go back to the doctor for the first time, get some medication, found out how to you know, deal with everything. Um, married the Canadian poet bartender. And, um, my brother calls me from Wyoming, and he says, you know, Eddie, how come you never left? Like, you know, you didn't have anything going. What was the, what kept you there? And I said, you know, you can almost die anywhere in the world, but this city saved my life. was Ed Gavigan. Ed designs furniture and houses. He lives in New York with his wife and their daughter. When Ed first told a short version of that story at one of our open mic storytelling contests, he had never been on stage before. Digging into the pain of his past wasn't easy for him, but he said the experience of opening up to the audience was cathartic. I'm Ed Gavigan. The Moth audience is so receptive and warm. I mean, you get up on the stage and normally, you know, you have a little stage fright, and here you're so supportive. The Moth Radio Hour will continue in a moment. When we come back, we'll hear about a home care attendant who makes a shocking discovery about her newest patient. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I'm Catherine Burns, and this is the Moth Radio Hour. The next story is from Stephanie Somerville. She's an actress and writer. Here's Stephanie live at the Moth. Okay. So I got to say, hands down, the tw my 20s were the worst years of my life. Uh, I spent most of my adult life trying to escape uh, southern Indiana, which is where I'm from. And uh, you, the thing you have to know about where I'm from is southern Indiana is highly prejudiced, highly racist, and terribly boring. So... <laughs> One of the things I was looking forward to was going to college. So I picked, an, uh, back then we called them Negro Colleges. It was part of the Negro College Consortium. I picked a black school down in Atlanta, Georgia to go down to so I could be with like my people. Because I was the only like black kid in like the middle income world of Evansville, Indiana, and it was highly boring. I knew nothing about my people, and we didn't have MLK Day and all those wonderful things. So I thought it would be great. I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm going to experience the culture of the African diaspora, and it turned out to be the worst moments of my life. It first started, I went to this um, college, and the president decided to embezzle funds from the school, and the way he did that is he took loan checks and scholarship money from innocent kids in transition like myself. So that was the first thing that happened. 
The second thing that happened was when I was down there, I had an opportunity to work on a film set, and I was like, that's really cool, and they were like, yeah, Steph, since you're part of the mass communications classes, you could take this and totally get credit, and so I was like, yay, this is great. So I'm working on this major motion picture, and about three and a half weeks into it, the producers and the directors just up and left. They pulled out their trucks, and they took everything away, and they didn't tell anybody. So as a result, um, I lost my college credit, uh, for the class, which means that ruined my GPA, and as an overachiever, you do not fuck with my GPA, okay? <laughs> like, you could take anything from an overachiever, but you cannot fuck with the GPA. So, that happened to me. I lost my scholarships. As a result, I lost my housing. And for two and a half weeks, I became homeless. And I had, I found a job at a McDonald's and I slept on the stockroom floor till I could get my first paycheck and I bought a bus ticket and came back to the place that I didn't want to, which was Southern Indiana. So I get home to Southern Indiana and I knock on the door and my mother's like, oh, you're here. So sorry, but I've sold your bedroom set to your grandmother and your bedroom is no longer here. Uh, I've turned it into my sitting area and it has a lovely eight piece pit in the middle of it and a glass and brass table. So there was nowhere for me to stay. So in protest, I went to go live out in the garage with the car. So it was an unfinished garage and I'm living there, I'm sleeping on the chaise lounge, the outdoor furniture that mom had left, you know, that kind of breaks down and I'm sleeping on it and I am terribly, terribly depressed now. I'm sleeping something like 16 hours a day and this goes on for a couple of weeks. And the things you, thing you have to realize is that when you're clinically depressed, you have absolutely no energy. It's not just like, I'm sad. It's like you don't have energy to do anything. So I finally get up the nerve to open up a newspaper to look for a job in Southern Indiana. So I open up the paper and I was so excited because this was the 80s and the new thing was to have home health care aides. Um, people that would go in and sit with the elderly, help to feed them, give them their medicine, things like that. So when I open up the page and I see it, it was like a hallelujah moment. It was like, oh, sitter. And I'm like, what better job for a depressed person than to have a job just sitting? That's all I had to do. And I was like, thank God I can go do this job. So I finally went to this place called Health Skills. Uh, and it was a temp agency. So they gave me my first assignment. And one of the things that they did not tell me is that when you're the new kid on the block, you get all the worst assignments. So as a sitter, for the first few assignments that I had, I had only terminally ill patients people that were dying. And I was like, oh joy. Um, but, and the thing is it can't be helped because other people want jobs with longevity. So I take this job, I walk up to this door, okay? And I'm knocking on the door. It's like a middle class, like working class, all white neighborhood, you know, frame house, house, house on cinder blocks with a little front porch. So I knock on the door and the door has a window in it and I see that they've got like these lace curtains and I see this woman peer out and she's like this thin, skinny, sissy spacek looking woman. And she looks at me and she says, go away! And so I said, Hi, ma'am, I'm here from Health Skills. I'm here because you needed a sitter. And I thought that would help. And she said, go away, I don't want you here. And so I tried to explain this to her again. And she said, fine. So she goes to her, what she does is she goes to the phone and she calls the company from where I'm from. And I'm standing outside, it's hot, it's kind of July and sticky. And I'm waiting on her to you know, get through this phone call. And finally, it feels like that she hasn't won because she just slams down the phone. She comes to the door and she opens it and lets me in. So I'm walking through this house, which is a lot like a railroad apartment here in New York. You have to walk through the living room, kitchen, finally to the bedroom, and the bathroom is off to the side. So you can see through all the way through the house. So we make our way to the back of the house, and I get to the bedroom, and I am hit with this horrible stench, and I had to immediately stop my own gag reflex. It is, the air is filled with the smell of bile. And I look on the bed, and there's this man lying on a hospital bed in an otherwise regularly normal-looking bedroom 
uh, and he's on a gurney at a 45 degree angle. He has breathing tubes and IVs and that kind of stuff in him. And he's completely unconscious. And while he's on the bed, the breathing machine is working and it's pumping up this brown mousse or foam. It kind of looks like uh, the texture of styling foam. It's coming out of his mouth and nose. And what I discover is that this man is dying of cirrhosis of the liver. And in the final stages, the liver and the bile are breaking down. They're making their way. It's building up his fluid into the lungs. And the body is trying desperately to get rid of that so that it can breathe. And so that's what's coming up out of his mouth and nose. And so every 15 minutes, this process goes through. And I have to stand there and clean it up. So me being an overachiever and wanting this job and wanting to do well, I throw myself into the job, and I'm helping me. This woman who, I, who's in, you know, who let me in is very like aggressive. She's not, um, she's not, she doesn't say anything, but she's not very kind to me, and she lets me know that very quickly. So we clean up this man, and there's nothing but for me to do but to just wait, okay? So I'm like, okay, maybe I should just sit down. And I look at this woman, and she's staring at me like just hate pouring from her eyes. And I don't know what the hell I've done. I've just done my job, and I've done it pretty well, being, you know, considering. So um, I tell her, I look at her, and I say, look, I, I can get this. I'm fine now. So she just turns around, doesn't say a word to me, and she walks right back down that hallway, and she goes and sits on the couch. And even though she's sitting across from the TV, she's sitting profile because she can see down the hallway, and she's staring like this. You know, here's the TV, and there's me down there, and she's staring. She's got her eye on me. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm gonna try to take this all in. I'm gonna sit down and I'm looking at the room and it's filled with this nice shaker furniture and it's got a floor to ceiling Confederate flag behind the man's bed and I'm just totally <laughs> looking around. And the thing that I have to tell you is that when you are depressed, it takes a little while for the gears to kick in and that's what's happening to me at this moment. So I'm taking in the furniture, there's a lovely armoire, and I'm so Martha Stewart, I'm into decorating and everything, so I'm, I'm actually kind of impressed, because it's very sparse, very thin, but very nice, old, antiquated furniture, and they have a little coat tree, and I see on the coat tree, I notice there is this beautiful robe, kind of like um, a church robe, except it's white, and it has a round circle with a white cross on it, and a hood. But it, I still am not taking this in because I am totally amazed by this hood and the buttonhole stitching that is going around the eyes of the hood, you know, for the eye part. So I'm not paying attention. So I was like, you know, maybe I should take up something because, and then I looked down the hallway as if, you know, for explanation, and the woman is looking at me. And I'm looking at her, and you know, the way we deal with things in Indiana is that we kind of try to normalize things. So that's what I did, is I was like, okay, I'm just sit here, oh, there's a table, and there's a book on it, hooray. I have something to do now. So I pick up this book, and I'm standing there, and I'm flipping through the book, and I'm, it looks like a Bible, because it's got gilt lettering on the outside. And I was like, oh, great, it's a Bible, I know that. You know, Corinthians, Lutheran, you know, uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, you know, Proverbs for wisdom, you know, Psalms, if you're sad, Genesis, you know, the beginning. So I'm opening up the book, and I'm trying to look for something peaceful and happy to read, and instead I come across this horrible looking manifesto that talks about the superiority of the white race and how we need to annihilate everyone but them for their own safety, and I shut the book and it finally hits me that I am in the home of an honest to God Klansman, and I am a black woman. <laughs> and so, I look down the hallway at this woman and she's looking back at me like, don't you get this now? And I'm like, oh, shit, okay? So, but now the mess is coming up again from this man's mouth and nose and I'm like, oh, thank God, thank God, I got something to do, I got something to do. So I'm going and I'm going to clean up this mess and the stench is awful and I'm looking at this man and I'm like, I'm so glad he's not sentient because this is horrible irony. I am helping to clean him up and he's a black, he's a white man. He probably hates me. And you know, I don't hate him personally, but my people hate him and there's all this kind of like anxiety and feeling and I'm like, dude, we cannot do this right now because I need a job, okay? Because I gotta get up out of the garage and I just, I, I am so depressed, I can't do anything. And I'm just like, we have to get through with this, okay? And I was thinking to myself, you know, wait a minute. I'm an overachiever. I can totally do this. I am not gonna let a little racism stand in my way. 
I have got to get this done. I am going to do it well. I am going to get an A plus. I'm going to get a check, and I'm going to get the fuck up out of here. Okay? And that is exactly what I did. I did that every 15 minutes for four hours that day. For four hours. And I sat there and I watched him. And the woman, after a while, she went to go get something to eat and she did get distracted by the TV. And at the end of the day, I came back the next day. And I came back and she opened the door and we went through the ritual again. And she wasn't quite as, you know, unfriendly. She, I guess she recognized I was not going to kill the man. Um, so, I, we kept on with the same routine, and she did take a little bit of rest. And I came back again a third day. And the third day, she was getting more tired. What I finally realized was that this woman was not getting any rest unless I was there to take care of him. That nobody would come to save her or to help her, which I thought was really sad. And by the fourth day, she just came to the door and immediately laid down, and I did the job and I had to wake her up at the end of that four hours. And then on the fifth day, the, the temp agency called me and they told me that the man had passed away. But the woman had called to leave me a message and she had told them this, that he had had the best care that he had ever had since he had left the hospital and that it was the most sleep that she ever got the most peace that she ever had was when I was there and that she wanted to thank me personally. And I thought, man, that is amazing. And she left me a tip, uh, which the temp agency would not let me keep. Um, but the thing that I get out of that is amazing, is this, that these two people had come together, these two incredibly desperate people, um, you know, <laughs> in a highly charged, highly provocative situation, we came together and our lives kind of touched. And in that touching, we kind of changed the trajectory of our lives forever, you know? It started just a little bit there, you know? And I'd like to think that I changed the way that she thought about people of color, that we weren't whatever it was that those people were teaching her, and that she could treat them with respect going forward. And for myself, what I got out of it was that I got a job and I finished doing what I had to do and it gave me something to do every day which I desperately needed to do. And so it didn't matter. We did change our lives just a little bit right here. But further out on our life path, you know, it, it, that, that added. It became even wider, the difference, and you could totally see it until the point where when I had left that city, I was literally in another state. And I was also in another state. Thank you. That story was from Stephanie Somerville. It was recorded for a show we called Save Me, Stories About Rescues and Redemption. We first found Stephanie at a holiday party where she was holding court, telling the story you just heard to a rapt crowd. Six months later, she told it live at the Moth. Have you ever told a great story at a party? Or do you know someone else who has? We want to hear it. Call our Story Pitch hotline at 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684 to leave a two-minute message or log on to themoth.org to record your pitch right on the web. Stay tuned for more stories from The Moth. When we come back, writer Malcolm Gladwell will tell us about a wedding toast that went horribly, horribly wrong. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the public radio exchange PRX.org. I'm Katherine Burns, and the next story here on the Moth Radio Hour is from Malcolm Gladwell. He told it at a show we called Crack Up, stories about comedies and calamities. Here's Malcolm live at the Moth. Many years ago, I ruined a beautiful friendship, and it was over a song, which sounds like a strange thing to ruin a friendship over, um, and what makes it even stranger is that the song was sung with the utmost love and affection. Um, my, my, my friend's name was Craig, 
and I met him at college. We both went to this little tiny place called Trinity at the University of Toronto, and it was it's this weird little um, place, and we, we would wear gown, long black academic gowns and jackets and ties to all meals, and we would say Latin grace before we ate, and we were, it was this sort of strange place. We weren't really, we didn't really have jocks because we weren't large enough, and we didn't really have a party culture because we were too nerdy for that. Um, all we really ever did was sit around and make fun of each other, um, which I realize all students do, but we did this to an extraordinary extent. And the person who was best at that game of making fun of everyone was my friend Craig. Um, Craig was this tall, incredibly handsome guy, and he had this extraordinary charisma, and women flocked to him. He was just this sort of legend with, um, with the ladies, and he had this sense of humor that was just something that I had never encountered before um, in my life. And he really kind of led us like Pied Piper. And he, he decreed, for example, at one point that everyone should have a nickname. And not just a kind of casual nickname, but a, a, seri a nickname that had been considered and thought about. So, for example, there was a woman named Felicity Smith who was this kind of busybody. She's kind of, she ran everything and she ran around and she was always in people's business. And, you know, we thought long and hard about what her nickname should be until Craig finally said, Felicity Split. <laughs> and there was a, a guy named Kai Carmody, who was this incredibly serious, studious guy. And um, we wanted to have a nickname for him, but it was very difficult because he was, he was so boring. And we thought about it and thought about it. And finally, Craig said, high comedy. <laughs> Now, that makes it sound like he's all sort of sweetness and light, but he actually wasn't. There was a, a kind of a mean streak in him. He had an instinct for the jugular. He really could expose and identify someone's weakness, but it didn't matter because there was something about his sense that made it possible for him to pull that off. You know, so, for example, there was a guy named, there was a guy who was this brilliant, incredibly good-looking person who everyone loved and was... He was, good. he was just a kind of winner, and he did all kinds of wonderful things on campus. And um, he had one very small weakness, which was that he wasn't nearly as successful with women as you would have thought. And Greg de Craig decreed that he should have a nickname, and um, we couldn't think of one because this guy was so perfect. And finally, Craig came up with one, and the guy's name was Saul Pinkston, and Craig said, Small Dinkston. <laughs> but that was an... Nicknames were just part of it. What really, Craig's real extraordinary gift was songs. He had this ability to almost on the fly make up songs about people and he would sing them at the most kind of inopportune moments and it was incredibly, it was just this gift that I had never seen before in anyone. And I remember once there was a guy in, my, in our college called Phil Walk and Phil was this really big kind of schlubby guy and, he was dressed really badly, and his hair was always in every direction. He was always charging around. And one time we were sitting in the dining hall. We would always we would sit around Craig in the dining hall for hours after every meal. And, and Phil Walk kind of charges in. And Craig just starts singing the Phil Walk song. And it was, we'd never heard it before. And we think he made it up right on the moment. But it was to the tune of Feeling Groovy by Simon and Garfunkel. And it was, slow down, you hulking mass. Your jeans are ripped, we can see your ass. And there was, I forget the whole, there's a whole long verse after that. And the chorus, I just remember the chorus. I'm Phil Walk, I'm big and goofy. Do 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 big and goofy. Now I realize in retrospect that um, I was in love with Craig in that way that you are when you're 18 and you meet someone who's just more brilliant and whose light shines brighter than yours. And I did everything, you know, all I wanted to do was to kind of be as funny as he was and to make him laugh and to bring him jokes and songs and see if I could seize his, his, his interest. And, you know, I, never was, I was never as good as him, but it didn't seem to matter because there was this quality of generosity about him. He really wanted everyone around him um, to be as funny as he was. And it was even an honor to be made fun of by, by Craig because he did it with such panache and such, and such joy. 
And I can remember at the time that I thought that I would spend the rest of my life whenever I had some funny thought or came up with some funny song that I would just call up Craig and sing it to him and make him laugh. And that was going to be you know, a, part of, a part of who I was for, for as long as I lived. But then something happened that changed everything. And that is that uh, Craig met a woman named Lee and they decided to get married. Now, Craig met Lee at graduate school. They were both getting their PhD at Chicago and they were night and day. He, Craig was from a small town called Barrie in Northern Ontario and from a very, very modest background. And Lee was from Phoenix and she was really wealthy. Her father was some hotshot Republican defense contractor and, and she was, he was, Craig was a kind of indifferent student and he was still kind of working away on his PhD because he, I think, spent so much time just sort of with people and whereas she was as brilliant, she'd gotten her PhD already, she got it like two years and she was off. And more than that, she was a, she was incredibly dominating. I mean, we thought Greg had a powerful personality but she put him to shame. She, she would finish his sentences, she would pay for everything, she would boss him around. And worst of all, she didn't have a sense of humor at all. She had none of Craig's wonderful, whimsical take on the world. She was the anti-Craig in, in many ways. And I realize now, looking back with the perspective of history, I realize now that I hated her. I really did. Um, not just for the fact that she had taken Craig away, but, but, but because she had changed him, that she had changed who he was and what he meant to me. Um, but at the time, I didn't realize that at all. None of us did. All we knew was that this beloved figure in our life was getting married. And what kind of gift do you give to someone like that, the ultimate songster? Well, will you give him the gift of a song, right? Not just any song, but the best possible song you can come up with. And that was where the trouble started. Um, the wedding was in Phoenix, which is where her family was from, and her parents were called Dick and Celeste, and they were the, they looked like they had fallen asleep under a heat lamp. They, they were that kind of uptight, Republican, country club kind of people, and they, the wedding was this extraordinary, elaborate affair, and there was there must have been seven different events and we drove up and down the interstate in these air-conditioned vans with chauffeur drivers. And um, it, we, I, I remember the rehearsal dinner was at this Western-style steakhouse and there were big plates of kind of glistening steaks. It was just obscene. And, and we, we had planned our song for the wedding and we decided that at the rehearsal we would just do a kind of a little, a little teaser. And, it was at the end of the evening, and my friend John, who was with me, he was elected to do the honors, and he got up and he, he, he took into his pocket and he took out a huge kind of folded bit of paper, and he said, I just want to say a very simple thanks to the people in Craig's life who have made him who he is. I'd, I'd like to thank his parents for giving him that joy. Um, I'd like to thank his science teacher in high school for giving him a love of of, of chemistry, because chemistry was, and, I'd, and I'd, I'd like to thank his Boy Scout leader who gave him such a love of the outdoors. And most of all, I'd like to thank the women in his life who paved the way for this wonderful relationship <laughs> with Lee. And he just started to read. Rachel, Mary, Julie, <laughs> Lauren. And then he unfolded the paper and it reached all the way to the floor. And he just started reading one name after another. And we, of course, were collapsed with laughter. We thought this was the funniest thing of all time. But I happened to look across the table at Lee, and there was this mixture of loathing and contempt and pure rage on her face. And I had this kind of feeling that, oh my god. And when we went back to the hotel that night, I said to my friends, I said, you know, maybe we can't do this song. I, I, don't think, I don't think Lee's gonna take it well. And for a moment, for a moment we were gonna shelve everything and I, I wish to God that we had. But we didn't because I think in some ways we could not wrap our mind around the fact that our friend Craig had 
grown up and moved on. In our mind, he, we were still sitting around the dining room table at college with him singing songs. So anyway, the wedding was the next day, and it was at some extravagant resort off in the desert in, outside of Phoenix. And every defense contractor in the state of Arizona was there, and, you know, with their wives with the hair and the bosoms out to here. And there were big pictures of, of martinis on every table and all kinds of backslapping and, you know, admiring references to Ronald Reagan and all kinds of long speeches. And finally, it was our turn. And we were, we were really nervous because we had been preparing this gift for so long and it meant so much to us that this was what we would give Craig on the greatest day of his life. And so we walked, the three of us walked to the front of the room and we turned to the band and we said, do you know Frank Sinatra's My Way? And they said, of course. And they said, well, our song will be to that. And we started to sing. And now the time has come for us to toast the boy from Barry. He lived a life that's true and swore that he would never marry. But then he met a girl who set him straight. He couldn't run away. So Craig, he tied the knot. He did it his way. And after I finished, we finished the first verse, I look over at Lee, and she has that same look on her face that she had and I can tell she knows what's coming. She knows enough about Craig and more importantly about us to know that this will not end well. And were I a savvier or a smarter person, I would have just cut it off then, but I, I couldn't because we were in mid-song. Girlfriends. He's had a few, in fact a lot. The list is endless. But Lee is a woman that's true. She set him straight, and now he's friendless. He met her mom and dad, who planned his wedding along the freeway. So Craig, he tied the knot, he did it their way. And then I look across at Lee and I see that she's, she's, she's standing up. And then, I, and then I see that she grabs Craig by the hand and she pulls him up. And I realize to my horror that they're leaving their own wedding reception. And as they walk towards the door, he looks back at me with this and the look in his eyes is a mixture of pain and confusion and betrayal. And it's the, one of the most painful moments of my life. And it's also the last time I ever laid eyes on Craig. Right? But what are we going to do? We're, we're, only, we're only halfway through the song. We, we haven't even gotten to the bridge. All of our best material is still ahead of us. So we, we keep singing to this random group of defense contractors in the middle of Arizona. What is this man? What has he got? A shelf of bricks? A squeaky cot, she pays the bills, he sits and rots, she has her doctorate and he has not. He's on a leash, he's made his peace, he'll do it her way. That was Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of the books Outliers, Blink, and The Tipping Point, and he's a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. And now, 
end is near. That's all for the Moth Radio Hour this time. Go to themoth.org for more information. You can also sign up for our free podcast or pitch your own story. That's themoth.org. And we are all ears. Your host for the Moth Radio Hour this week was Catherine Burns, the Moth's artistic director. Catherine also directed the stories in this hour. Okay, so everybody who um, put a story in the hat but did not tell a story, please come up to the front. Oh, the first line of the story, it's that simple. Okay, come on up, everybody. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Brandon Ector. My phone rings as soon as I get to work, and I already know it's my mother because my phone rang as soon as I got to work. <laughs> Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Ratatat, Gotan Project, and Frank Sinatra. The first time I got the second bass was at my grandmother's 75th birthday party. <laughs> The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. You know that feeling you get when you wake up uh, in a wheelchair surrounded by cops at LaGuardia Airport? The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. Do you know that feeling when you're in a car to LaGuardia and your buddy has three seizures and he wakes up in a wheelchair surrounded by cops? For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.